0: It's wonderful to be back with you and to see so many of you from last year's study but to also welcome back so so many new women we're so excited that you've joined us and that you're part of this study and i just wanted to share a little bit as we begin about what this bible study has meant to me and what i've been learning through it my name is katie talcott i'm one of the teachers of this study and my husband and i moved here two years ago from california and right as he was making the decision to take the job out here in Kentucky, we were finishing, it was April, May, we were finishing women's Bible study at our church in California, and we were doing the redemptive history study. And when he decided to move here, I remember just thinking, no, I only got through the Old Testament. (laughs) I didn't get to finish. And it just felt like running half a race or doing something completely and just not finishing. And I was really close to the women in my group, and I had been involved in getting this particular study started, and it just felt so devastating to me to not finish. So then we moved to Kentucky, and God brought us to Fisherville, and, but there wasn't a women's Bible study here, but we hadn't been here long before Betty Humphreys and Heather came to me and said, Hey, do you want to help start a Bible study? So said, I'd love to do that. So we started talking, and we talked about different things that we could be studying, and I mentioned this study, but I really I mentioned quite a few studies, because I didn't think this is really where we wanted to start. I thought it might be too hard. And Heather and Betty were like, no, this is the study. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then we talked to Jonathan and to Pastor Brian. And again, I'm like, well, we also have these other studies. And Brian was like, no, this is what you have to do. And I'm like, okay. So it's particularly sweet to me today because now God has brought it full circle that I am finally getting to finish. <laughs> I'm finally getting to finish the New Testament. We don't do that. And so what started in California, is going to end... well people will do this for many years, but this study will end in Kentucky, and it's really sweet to be with all of you. And as we did this study last year, and even as I was preparing for today, I was just reminded again of how God's impact used this to impact me, how I have learned to trust him more, how I've learned to have confidence in his coming kingdom, and have hope in eternity, and that we can go through the trials of this life with confidence because of what he's going to do in the end, because of how he will be victorious, and because of the kingdom that he's bringing. So I'm excited today for us to talk about the kingdom. So let's pray, and we'll start. Lord, thank you for each of these women. Thank you for the opportunity to teach your word. Please help me to do it in a way that honors you, that's helpful to all the hearers, and please help us, even as we're trying to take in a large amount of information, to really focus on what's most important of being in awe of you and worshiping you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we're starting, I just wanted to remind you, why are we doing this study? Why a redemptive history study instead of you know just focusing in on one book and going really deep. And if you remember last year, I told you the story of Florence Chadwick. And Florence Chadwick was a long-distance swimmer, and in 1952, she wanted to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the shore to the coast of California. It's a 21-mile swim. And the day she chose to do it turned out to be really foggy. That's can happen when you're in a coastal town, but she dove in, got started, and she swam for 15 hours. And 15 hours in, her mom was in a boat next to her, and she looked at her mom, and she said, I just can't do it. This is a woman who swum the the English Channel. She has done many long-distance swims successfully, but she just said, I can't keep going. And she climbed into the boat to find out she was a half mile from shore. And she was talking to reporters afterwards, and she said, if I could have seen the shore, I know I would have finished. And she did. Later, when it was a sunny day, she, she did the swim again, and she made it. But it just stuck with me. If you could have seen the shore, she would have finished. And there's truth to that in our lives. When we can see the big picture, when we can see how it all fits together, and we can see where we are in the big picture and where, we're, where it's going to end, it gives us the hope and perspective we need. And so one of the reasons for doing this study is to understand when we do a book study like Romans how it fits into God's redemptive plan, how it fits into the Bible. Because remember, we also talked that the Bible is not 66 books. It's one book was 66 chapters, right? It's one book telling one story. And so we wanted to see how God, the author of the one story, is weaving the thread of redemption through the entirety of Scripture. So we said last year that we had a purpose statement for our study. We said the purpose of the study of the Old Testament is to see God's ma- master plan through Scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole, and how it points to the Messiah Jesus and his future kingdom. So we were looking at for the king and the kingdom through the Old Testament. We also, just, so we, we said, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom we're looking for? And we, and we said that often, because we said the key theme of Scripture is the kingdom of God, and that often there is a debate. Is the theme of Scripture the kingdom, or is the theme of Scripture the covenants? And remember we used Graham Goldsworthy's quote where he said, God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. It's not either or, it's both. God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. And we also used his definition of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So I just want us to tuck those two things away, cement them in our mind for the study. God's kingdom, covenant promises, excuse me, are kingdom promises. The covenant promises are kingdom promises, and the kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And as, today what I'm going to try to do is review the Old Testament. For those of you who were in the study last year, I just want us to be refreshed and just trigger, hopefully in your memory, what we learned last year to prepare us for the study of the New Testament. For those of you who weren't here, I just want to give you kind of a really big mountaintop view of what we studied last year so that you can know the high points. And hopefully all of you got the redemptive history handout from your small group leaders if you didn't. um, Maybe Jessica can hand them out to anybody who didn't. Thank you. Um, Because I'm covering so much material, I want you to have the handout so you're not trying frantically to keep up and keep the notes. I think it'll help you guys follow along today. And I practiced this a couple times with my husband, and when I finished the last time, I was so proud of myself. Because I'll be honest, I had a few panic attacks about trying to teach the Old Testament in time for us to leave before dinner. And cover it all in 30 minutes, basically. And so when I finished, and I was in the time frame, I was super excited. And he was like, well, you can cut this out, and you can cut that out, and you can cut this out. I was like, well, but I was in the time frame. And he said, it's still kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> I don't know if I can avoid that for you guys today because it's a lot of material. So if you're new in the study, please know that today's lecture is not how it normally is. <laughs> normally, we cover smaller chunks. I go a little slower. So please don't say, oh, I can't do this study after today's lecture. Just review the handout and know that this is just a really big overview, okay? So let's start at the beginning. If you would turn with me to the book of Job. If you remember from last year, we learned that Job is the first book of the Bible. It was obviously not written chronologically first, but it was the first book to be written. When Moses wrote the Pentateuch and wrote about Genesis, Job had already been written. And so Job is the first written book of the Bible, and Job sets up for us. Again, the theme of scripture. He's going to ask some key questions that are going to set the trajectory and really tell us what the Bible is going to be about. You can view Job as the prequel to the book. The prequel to the book. And so as you're turning to Job chapter 7, just remember Job is a righteous man, and he is suffering greatly for his righteousness. Satan has come to heaven. He has told God, oh, Job only, he only follows you because you blessed him. And God says, no, that's not true. And Job has lost his money, his family, his children, he still has his wife, but his children and his health. He is in very severe trial, and when we're in trials, we t- suffering causes us to ask important questions—questions questions about God, questions about ourselves. Is the Bible real? Can we trust God? Can we have confidence in Him through with the situation we're going through? Does He hear my prayers? We ask the questions that really matter, and Job asks three critical questions in his trials. And they were going to, like I said, they're going to set the trajectory for where we're going. And in Job chapter 7, we read his first question, or as Dr. Chow says, Job's three wishes. Job says, if these three wishes could come true, if these three things were real, then I would know that God could handle anything. Because if God can handle these three problems, the biggest problems man faces, then God can handle it. If he can handle the big problems, he can handle the small ones. And so in verse 7, chapter 7, excuse me, verse 17, he says, What is man that you make so much of him? That you set your heart on him and visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job is saying, I'm so insignificant. Kind of, why are you picking on me? Right? Right? But then he says, what does he want? If only you would what? Pardon my transgression. Job desires forgiveness. He desires redemption. So we see in chapter 7, the first to desire, the first question, I need rede- forgiveness. I need redemption, God. And then as, if you turn over to chapter 9, verse 32, he says, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both of us. What does he want? He's saying, I can't stand before God and argue my case. I can't plead with him. I need someone who will represent me, someone who could touch me and touch God, right? Because if God touches man or man touches God, you die. So he needs someone who can fill in that gap. He wants representation, redemption and representation. Then over in chapter 14, we get his final wish. He says, starting in verse 13, Oh, that you would hide me in shield, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Job wishes for resurrection. Redemption, representation, resurrection. And Do you see right now how this is setting the stage? for the Bible, for the message and the story of the redemptive thread that we're tracing. But it's not just those three things that we need. We also see that we need revelation. Because Job's three friends come to him, right? And they're trying to help him make sense of what's happening to him. And they use reasoning, science, history, philosophy, logic. Like, oh, it must be this, it must be that. And they're always wrong. And why are they wrong? Because no one that was living at Job's time had the heavenly perspective that the reader gets to have. God lets us peek into heaven. He, he re- le- reveals to us what's really happening in Job's situation. And apart from Revelation, we never know the big picture. We're always limited in our view, and we're very much like Job's friends, trying to figure things out without the right perspective. But in Job twenty-eight twenty-eight, he says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Does that sound kind of familiar to a proverb we might know? He's quoting Job, right? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Again, Dr. Chow says, The reason the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the moment you can actually listen to God, believe what he said, and surrender to him, you become wise. Let me read that to you again. The reason the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the moment you can actually listen to God, believe what he said, and surrender to him, you become wise. If you do it on your own, you will never be wise because you never have the big picture. So Job is the prequel. It sets the trajectory for redemptive history, saying that we need redemption, representation, resurrection, and revelation. And so now let's go to the beginning of the story in Genesis and see how all of these things that Job wants are going to be resolved in the king and the kingdom. And the king and the kingdom are so important because as we come to Matthew next week, that's what the book of Matthew is all about king and the kingdom. And remember, God's covenant promises are kingdom promises, and the kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. So in Genesis chapter 1, God has created the world, and in chapter 26, if you drop down, it says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And in verse 28, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. Dominion can also be translated as rule. Remember, we studied who has rule, who has dominion. The king has rule. The king has dominion. God is setting up Adam as the, we called him the lowercase k king under God. He has a mediatorial rule, and he's setting him up to rule the earth as a king. And we see that immediately, and he names the animals. I have lots of friends. I have a friend who invited me to come to her delivery when she had her baby. Lots of friends with babies, and she wanted me to be there when she had her baby. My sister has my little nephew in the back and I have, I have lots of friends with babies, and do you know what? Not one of them asked me to name their child. Not any of them. They all named their own kids. Why? Because they're the parent. They have authority over their children. Adam is exercising dominion and authority in naming the animals. It's one of the first things he's doing as king and as ruler over the earth. Well, we often don't think of Adam as a king because his reign is so short, right? He falls quickly. Chapter 3, we see the colossal collapse. Before we see that, do you see the picture of the kingdom? We see God's people, Adam and Eve. They're in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And remember when we talked about the Garden of Eden, we said it was the capital of the world, and that the Eden was up on a mountain. All of the rivers that flow to the earth are coming from it. We talked about all the precious metals. God is, and Eden means what? Paradise. So Adam and Eve are ruling from Eden, God's place, which is paradise. And they're under God's rule. How did God rule them? He gave them his good word, remember? He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God ruled them through his word, and he blessed them. So they're God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. But then Adam and Eve, they fall. We call that the colossal collapse of the plan. And everything God created was reversed. Instead of Adam leading his wife and ruling over the creature, the creature tells Eve to to eat, and Eve leads Adam into sin, the complete reversal of what God had created. And there's a fall, and God curses the ground. He curses the serpent. He punishes Adam and Eve. But remember, he gave us hope in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see a picture right away. This is what we're looking for. This is where our hope is going to be, in the serpent crusher, in the descendant of the woman, the one who will come and defeat the serpent. And we see that he's going to be one who's going to stand in the place of others, right? Because offspring can, can also be translated seed. Remember we talked about that, that seed can be plural, you have lots of seed, or it can be singular. So obviously there'll be many descendants of the woman, but there's going to be one who crushes the serpent. So we're looking for one particular descendant, and when he does, if he crushes the serpent, the serpent's a supernatural being. So there's implied in the text that this one will have to be also supernatural. A man can't defeat Satan. It's not clear, it becomes clear as we go on later, I mean, I call it a hint, but it's it's, you can start thinking well who who what can the super crusher do if he's a man? Well, maybe he has to be more than a man, and he's going to be a descendant of the woman and he's going to stand in for the people. So we see this picture that he's going to be a mediator and he might be a hint of his divinity, not might he, a hint of that. Well, this picture becomes much clearer. In the Abrahamic Covenant, in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to start moving a little faster now. I wanted to lay the foundation, but in Genesis t- chapter 12, God calls Abraham and He gives him the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember, kingdom promises or covenant promises, covenant promises or kingdom promises are the same. So He gives Abraham a covenant. And when I say mention the Abrahamic Covenant, you guys were always supposed to remember last year an acronym for it. Remember LSB: Land, Seed, Blessing. And so He promises him a land. And he promises them many offspring, but also that word seed takes us back to Genesis 3.15. The seed is now going to come through the Abrahamic covenant. So now all eyes are on the Abrahamic covenant. This is where the seed is coming. This is where our hope and our redemption is coming. And, then, and through him, all the world is going to be blessed. Then in Genesis 17 and 22, we are further reminded of the covenant, but it's also expanded on. And God says it's not just a seed, it's going to be a king kings are going to come from your line and then we learn from the patriarchs that god wanted the nation of israel to to represent him to the world and to show who he was and so we learned from abraham that the righteous shall live by faith that israel had to be a nation of faith in god and we learned from jacob remember jacob and the ladder to heaven that god is present with his people and then when god turns jacob's name to israel remember what israel means it means god fights for you and so Israel's a nation that God is present with, that God fights for, who, and they need to be a nation that has faith in the true and living God. But then when we got to Joseph, remember we learned that his brothers cursed him. His brothers basically been sending him to slavery. That was a death sentence in that day. So they were basically saying, we want you dead, but not by our hand when they sent him to slavery. And most slaves didn't last more than a couple of years. So we can see even God's intervention on Joseph that he lived so long despite being a slave. And Joseph's in slavery. He's been, by his brothers, wished to be dead. And then years later, when the famine comes, and his brothers come to him, not knowing it's him, but they come asking for grain. What does Joseph tell them? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we learn that God can turn a curse to a blessing, right? He can turn evil to good. And then we learn in Jacob's life, who, it's not Jacob, excuse me, Judah, who the king is going to come from. Joseph shows us that God can turn evil to curse to blessing. And then from Judah, we learn more about the line. Turn to Genesis 49. We learn where the seed's going to come from. Jacob is at the end of his life. He's blessing his sons. And remember, in this era, the firstborn son, that was the son who was the big deal. That was the son who got the privileges and the rights, right? And so he come, Jacob blesses his firstborn, Reuben. But he says, you don't get the rights of the firstborn because you slept with my concubine. He comes to sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, and he goes, you don't get the rights of the firstborn because you murdered the men at Shechem. You disqualified yourselves. He comes to Judah, and what does he say in verse 10? The scepter, who, rules a, who has a scepter of the king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The king is coming through Judah, and if you're thinking, but Judah was a really bad guy too. Why wasn't he disqualified? I mean, remember Judah and Tamar? That was a pretty bad incident, and he definitely helped sell Joseph into slavery. Why isn't he disqualified? Because Judah's the brother who was that way, but he's the repentant brother. When it came time, remember Joseph, before he revealed himself, said he was going to take Benjamin? Judah says, take me instead. Judah was willing to lay down his life for his brother. When he's tested a second time, and the favorite brother that time is going to be, in their mind, potentially even killed, he says, take me instead. He, w- he was willing to lay down his life for his brother. In all those intervening years, Judah's heart was softened. he became repentant, and he shows us what's kingly in being willing to lay down his life. And he's the one that the seed comes through. And look what else we learn about this seed. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. When this seed rules, when this king is on the throne, the whole world is going to be blessed from him. And then, if you remember, we talked about um, verses 11. It says, Binding his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and the vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And We said, What's that a picture of? You would never tie a donkey to a vine, right? They'd break the vine and walk off. But when this king rules, vines will be so strong, so thick, they'll be like tree branches. And wine, that's a precious commodity. You don't waste that like water. But wine will be so abundant, it'll be like water. And milk, also a precious commodity, there'll be such an abundance of it, you can stain your teeth with it. It's a picture of curse to blessing. It's a picture of this world producing the way it should be if it wasn't cursed. When this king comes, he will reverse the curse. He will have the obedience of the people, and blessing will come to the whole world. And he's coming through the line of Judah. Well, that takes us to the book of Exodus, and if you remember in the book of Exodus, we finally learn God's name. He reveals his name to Moses, and he says his name is Yahweh, and what did that mean? That God is transcendent, right? He is relational, he is transcendent, God is God, and we can't reduce him or dissect him or pull him apart or make him like us. I am who I am. God reveals his name, and he also reveals his power to deliver, his power to save, as he conquers the greatest world power, as he shows all of their false gods to be false gods, and he redeems his people, and he brings them out. And then he gives them our second covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So we've had the Abrahamic Covenant, kind of our first snapshot of the covenant in the kingdom, and now we have the Mosaic Covenant. And again, Dr. Chow says that the, the Mosaic Covenant also referred to as the law. The law is a language. Actions speak better than words. It's meant to communicate to Israel and the world so that they would know who God is. The law teaches God's character, what he likes and doesn't like. It's reinforced through blessing and curses. It teaches us what what God ordained for eternal life. If you disobey the law, you will be disqualified. All of this is to show or to model what we are looking for in the Messiah. The law teaches us who God is, what he likes, and what he doesn't like. And that's how the blessings and curses worked, right? Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to curses under the Mosaic Covenant. Well, God gives them the law, and what do they do immediately? Remember the golden calf? Commentators say the golden calf incident was like committing adultery on your honeymoon. It was a complete violation of the law. It broke it in every way, and all the people, the punishment, the just punishment, should have been that the nation of Israel was wiped out and destroyed. But God, again, reveals more of his character to us. Turn to Exodus 34, 10, where he says again, The Lord, the Lord, merciful. What does it mean that God is merciful? That God has compassion like a mother to her child. He understands what people go through. The Lord, merciful and kind. What is the kindness of God? It's proactively doing good to someone. It's it's, it's Psalm 23, goodness and mercy follow you. It actually means they chase you down. Right? God's goodness... His kindness, it chases you down. It's proactively doing good to you. He's slow to anger. Very, very patient. He is abounding in steadfast love. This word is the word for grace, the steadfast love. It's how we get a theology of grace. Grace is God's proactive intervention for our good, where he does everything. It's an enormous extension of his power. It's like the power we see when God stills the storm. It's God turning the world upside down to keep his promises. And then we see that he's faithful. We don't have to worry that this is ever going to change. He is faithful. He is going to do it. And then we come to, why aren't they wiped out? He is forgiving. He forgives iniquities, trespasses, and sins. Three words for sin that means he forgives all kinds of sin. But it also says, right, but will by no means clear the guilty. So we have this tension. God's going to forgive, but he's not going to clear the guilty. How is that going to work? How can he forgive and not clear the guilty? We'll get to that in Leviticus. But first, I want us to just think briefly about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a picture of the Garden of Eden. Everything about its design was to point us back to Eden. And I'm sorry for those of you who are visiting. I can't go into the details of that. (laughs) You can listen to the lecture. You can actually, Pastor Brian did a great job on Sunday night discussing it. You could listen to his. It's better than mine. Um, But the tabernacle shows you Eden. And the whole ancient Near East world would have looked at it and said, that's a picture of Eden. And who lives in the tabernacle? God does. Who is the King? In the tabernacle, God is the King. God dwells. The King dwells in the tabernacle. And what occurs at the tabernacle? That's the place of sacrifice. That's the place where mediation occurs. God is with his people at the place where mediation occurs. And that takes us to Leviticus. How does a holy God live with an unholy people? How do you forgive and not clear the guilty? It's through sacrifice, through an atonement for sin. And the book of Leviticus teaches us that God is holy that we are a sinful people, and he calls us to holiness too, and that sacrifice is needed to atone for sin. Then the book of Numbers shows us God is serious about this holiness. He executes an entire generation for their rebellion, while he raises up another generation and refines them to go into the land. And he also, everything we've studied so far, all of this plan, this seed that we're tracing, only Israel knows about it so far. The world doesn't know, right? Moses is (laughs) writing these books. These aren't, you know, you don't go to your local Near Eastern ancient Near Eastern bookstore and pull these off the shelf, right? So God needs to make the world know his plan. So he picks a man named Balaam. Remember, Balaam's a false prophet, but he has a worldwide microphone. And so God gives him four oracles, and he says, you need to tell the world, this is my plan for Israel. And he reiterates in the first oracle, the Abrahamic covenant. And then he tells them, you all worship false gods, and you have a wrong view of God. I'm not like your false gods. I don't lie, and I don't change my mind. That's who Israel's God is. And then he tells them, all these promises, they revolve around a king in the third oracle. And in the fourth or- oracle, he says in Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion, Genesis three fifteen again, and destroy the survivors of the city. So again, we're looking for the king that's coming out of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy teaches us That the law is all about love for God. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And that is the heart of the law. And that brings us to Joshua, where the people go in and conquer the land. And we learn that God is a conquering God. He owns this world, and he's going to conquer it. He's going to own it all again. And he conquers the land, and the people are faithful to the covenant, and they enjoy the covenant blessings. So again, the covenant. We have God's people, Israel, and God's land. And they're obeying, and they're enjoying God's blessing but only lasts for a generation, maybe two, before we come to the book of Judges. And we talked about that spiral, that downward trajectory. It's not just a circle, it's it's like a tornado, right? Going down, 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 it just gets worse. Where the people continually do what's right in their own eyes, there's covenant unfaithfulness. But there's a repeated frame in the book of Judges, remember? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. The book of Judges is an argument that Israel needs a king. God always had a plan for a king. He lays out his plan for it in, in Deuteronomy. God, they need a king, but not a king who's like their judges. They need a righteous king. And against this d- backdrop is the book of Ruth. And we see that even in this sin and even in the mess, God has preserved the seed through this godly couple, Ruth and Boaz. And it, they are going to be right the great-grandparents of King David. So that brings us to First and Second Samuel, where we learn about the nature of the kingship. And how God wanted it to work. The people asked for a king. And usually—and it, it was wrong, not because there was never a plan for a king, but because they asked for wrong reasons, wrong king, and in the wrong way. So they wanted it for all the wrong reasons, and they wanted it on their terms, and they didn't want what God wanted. They did it in rebellion to him, not submission under him. And God gave them their king. He gave them Saul. And we learn quickly what the king is not supposed to be. And then God shows us who the king is supposed to be in David. He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And he gives David the Davidic covenant. And this is the most important covenant, right? Because all the promises of all the other covenants are in the Davidic covenant. And so we looked at that. Remember I told you Paul Twist, a professor at the Master Seminary, says it is not an overstatement to say that every understanding we have of Christ as an authority comes from the Davidic covenant. All redemptive history from this point moves forward through this covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Noahic covenant, they are all wrapped into the Davidic covenant. The king who rules the Davidic covenant rules all of them. And so if you look, look in, second chap, in Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, I'm going to read this covenant to us. And I'm just going to pause and tell you where the other covenants are in there so that you, you know it's not just me saying so. And as I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, cutting off your enemies is the Mosaic Covenant, and I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth, that's the Abrahamic Covenant, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own land, land is the promise of the Abrahamic Covenant, and be disturbed no more, and I will give you rest. That's a promise from the Noahic and the Mosaic Covenant. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up, your, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the Son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established. So we need to notice four elements from the Davidic covenant. One, there's again a promise of a seed. That word house, offspring, it's the seed. So the seed is now coming through Judah, through David. The seed is going to come from the line of David in the Davidic covenant. There's going to be a kingdom. This king is going to rule a kingdom. We're not. Gonna, it, you can see your further notes in your handbook, handout on that. And he's also going to, potentially have discipline. If the king is disobedient, he'll be disciplined. And so the kings that aren't the ultimate seed, right, they could go into exile. They could have enemies persecute them. If they're disobedient to the covenant, they will be disciplined. But it will never make the covenant void. It will never end the covenant. And don't we see even when in its full fulfillment, when Christ does come, he takes on, what does Isaiah 53 say? He takes on, right, our iniquities. He bears our griefs. He bears, he's punished for our sin, Right? So we see how that discipline can look for this. So we see there's going to be a house, there's going to be a seed, there's going to be discipline, and we, the goal of this covenant is the glory of God. And that takes us to First and Second Kings, because David failed. David wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. He wasn't the seed. He sinned with Bathsheba, he sinned in murdering Uriah, but he says, it's not me, but it'll be one of my descendants. And remember his son, Jedidiah, also known as Solomon? God said, he's the one who's going to rule after you. He's the one I love. His name means what? Peace. So all of Israel is sitting on the edge of their throne. Is he the one? Is he the seed? And he comes to power, and man, it sure looks that way, doesn't it? There's peace, right? When you have rest from your enemies, there's peace. When this king rules, there's peace. They're blessing the whole world. As Solomon rules, the rise of wisdom literature, the Proverbs, so many of the Psalms of him and David, and Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature that benefits everyone. The Queen of Sheba comes to him. the, The nations of the world come to him for their counsel. And What about the material wealth? Gold is so plentiful, silver has lost all value. If you read in chapters 4 and 5 the amount of food that they needed for Solomon's household alone, you realize two things. Solomon has a very large kingdom, a very great kingdom. And the second thing you realize is it's unbelievable that a tribe could produce that much food. It's almost like the curse has been lifted to have that kind of bounty, to have that kind of production of food. And it's this beautiful picture. But remember in Deuteronomy 17, we learned about the three G's? In Deuteronomy 17, there was a law for the king. And then God said, you shall not multiply wives. We called them gals. You shall not multiply gold. And you shall not multiply horses. We called them giddy up. No gals, no gold, no giddy up. That the king is forbidden to do them. That's what the foreign nations do. That's what they rely on. That's not how it's supposed to be for Israel's king. But there was something they were supposed to do. They were supposed to write a copy of the law. Remember, God rules through his good word. And they were supposed to follow it and read in it every day. And Solomon fails at every point. And we learn that Solomon is not the king, and that becomes a story of king after king after king. They're not the righteous seed, and so we come to the end of the book, and we're like, "Who is it?" It's obviously not a man. No man can do this. And then, second, first and second Chronicles parallel first and second Kings, and we see God desires a close relationship with His people, but they're always unfaithful, and the kings usually make things worse, and so they're going to go into exile. And right now, you could be thinking, "Show's over. Close, curtains closed." The promises aren't going to happen. They're in exile. There's no king. There's nobody in the land of Israel. But God sends the prophets to say, no, no, my plan and my covenant promises, they're still intact. In Isaiah, Isaiah says to them, it's your sin that is separated you from God. But in Isaiah 7, he says, but God will save, right? The virgin shall bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And in Isaiah 9, he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be, what? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The one who fulfills the Davidic covenant, he's going to be God. Now it's stated for us. He's going to be human, born of a virgin, but he's going to be God. That's who we're looking for. He's going to save you. God is going to send redemption. But Isaiah 53 also reminds us he's going to suffer, he's going to be the suffering servant. And Micah, he says, the Davidic dynasty, it's completely collapsed. Remember, he actually sings a funeral dirge over the house of David. He says it's over. Because why? Because the last line, the last descendant of Solomon, God curses him and says, you're never going to sit on the throne. They've been so covenantly unfaithful, the whole thing is collapsed. And I used, again, Dr. Chow's analogy. He said, pretend you're scuba diving, and you have all your scuba gear on, and someone's cut your line that you breathe with. Well, now nothing's, everything actually still technically works. You still have oxygen, you still have your flippers, your goggles, but you need a what? A replacement line. For everything to work, you need a replacement line. And that's going to be what we see in Matthew. And that's what Micah tells us. He says, where is the, where is the king to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem, in Judea. Why? Because that's where David was born. We're restarting this whole thing. We're going to have a new David, a second David, one who's going to su- su- succeed where David failed. And Amos picks up this exact same theme. He says the Davidic dynasty has collapsed, but it's going to be resurrected. He says the tent of David has fallen down, but it's going to be resurrected. And when, it, when, he, when, he's, when it's resurrected, he says the harvest will last until planting time. That's how great the bounty is going to be. Always this picture, this agricultural picture of curse to blessing. The book of Joel reminds the people that God has power in judgment but also in restoration and that he will one day nationally restore and pour out his spirit on the people. Obadiah reminds them that God, this judgment's not just for Israel, it's for all the nations. Nahum comforts the people and assures them that God hasn't lost. Ezekiel says, you're dead, Israel, you have a heart of stone, but God's going to give you a heart of flesh and he's going to resurrect you physically, spiritually, nationally, and the good shepherd is the one who will do it. And on and on, the prophets go with messages of hope. And We think of them so often as full of judgment and doom and gloom. But they say you're going to be saved, you're going to be redeemed, you're going to be resurrected, you're going to be given a kingdom, you're going to be given a king. But Jeremiah tells them, because he's the one talking to them right as they go into exile, he says those things are going to happen, but you're going to go to exile first. The discipline comes first. And he says, so what you need to do, Israel, because during Jeremiah's time, there were a lot of false prophets saying, ignore that Debbie Downer. We're not going into exile. I have a word from the Lord. Everything is going to be fine. They were false prophets. And Jeremiah says, no, we are going into exile. It's going to happen. And so what do you need to do? You need to repent of your sin and hope in the covenant promises. Repent of your sin and hope in the promises and submit to the discipline of the Lord. Submit to the plans God has for you. Jeremiah 29, 29, we think of that so differently when you think they're going into exile and they're called to submit to the exile. Yes, there's an ultimate hope in the covenant promises, a plan to prosper you one day, but first the plan is exile. First the plan, is, and so Jeremiah says, submit. Then we see that while they're in exile, God still fights for his people. The book of Esther. The book of Esther starts with everyone hating the Jews, and it ends with everyone pretending to be a Jew, Right? First, we're going to kill the Jews, but now the Jews are going to kill us because we, and so we're going to pretend to be them. That's how much God reverses the fortunes of his people and saves an entire nation from destruction, and his name's never mentioned in the book. That's a picture of God's providence. And then that we learn in Daniel, as we see through the pictures of Daniel and his friends, God overcomes every single adversity, and he will, in the end, overcome every adversity. He lays out his plan for the nations. Remember in the picture of the statue— And we learn that the Son of Man is going to be victorious. And then finally, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we learn that the plan is continued to be continued. God brings them back to the land. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. But it's not near the glory of even Solomon's temple. And we know this can't be the ultimate fulfillment. This can't be the ultimate kingdom or the ultimate temple. In fact, the book of Nehemiah ends with the people standing in the rain. If you imagine it was a movie, right? And it just kind of zooms out as it rains on Israel to be continued. Now, kind of a gloomy picture, right? Because this is not the ultimate fulfillment. But we do see that God is still at work. He's still keeping his promises. He's still preserving the line and preserving the seed because the hope is going to come through the king and the kingdom. And that's what the book of Matthew's all about. They've waited 400 years. We only had to wait this summer. And this week, we get to study all about the king and the kingdom. So everyone take a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep breath. <laughs> we got through the Old Testament in a short amount of time. Okay, <laughs> um, I hope that this kind of just wet your appetite for what we're going to study. Again, most lectures aren't like this, I promise. I just hope it got you excited about what God's doing. helps you to be in awe of who he is and what his plan is. And as we're getting ready to study the word, I love this quote from Kevin DeYoung. He's, he's summarizing Psalm 119, and he says, The word of the Lord, of God, is the way of happiness, the way to avoid shame, the way of safety, and the way of good counsel. The word gives us strength and hope. It provides wisdom and shows us every way we should go. We are to delight, desire, and depend on the word. So how are we called to respond? We sing, speak, study, store up, obey, praise God for, and pray according to his word. This is the spiritual reaction the spirit should produce in us when we fully grasp all that the Bible teaches about itself. So as we hopefully grasp the Old Testament part, I hope that is the response that's produced in our heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for each of these women. Thank you for how great you are, that you are sending a king who's going to rule a kingdom, who's going to reverse the curse and make all the sad things come untrue, who's going to give us eternal life and eternal hope in a perfect state with you. We're so excited about that, Lord, and we're excited to study about the king and Matthew. Please prepare our hearts to learn much from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.